like sprinting is sort of 80 to 100 milliseconds of maximum velocity. You're, on the jump mats, you're probably going to get about 120 milliseconds. Um, off the off the board is about 120 milliseconds or 140. Um, so you look at those sort of contact times for for your athletes and try and maximizing displacement at those contact times. That was performance coach and physiologist Joseph Coyne talking about the importance of knowing one's contact times relative to the event, be it sprinting or jumping, then building out training from there. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 74 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show, we have none other than performance coach, exercise physiologist, and sports scientist, Joseph Coyne. Joseph is from the Gold Coast, Australia. He's been spending a lot of time recently in China training world-class track and field sprinters and jumpers, uh, working alongside great coaches such as Randy Huntington. I don't remember exactly how I first came across Joseph's work, but I think it was his videos on Instagram, actually. And if you check out his, out his account, he has a lot of videos of working with some very high-level uh, Chinese sprinters, long jumpers, uh, people who are top 20 in the world in, in their event. And a lot of their, uh, if you've been keeping track of some of the Chinese sprinters lately and, and some of those uh, folk in that side of the country, or the world, I should say, uh, they've been laying down some pretty amazing uh, feats and times, and I was really just excited to kind of pick Joseph's brain uh, on what they've been doing over there. I, I, I know uh, he works alongside, as I mentioned, Randy Huntington, uh, who's doing an amazing job with the sprint program there. Uh, they had the first athlete, uh, Asian-born athlete to crack 10 seconds in the 100-meter dash. Uh, they've had a slew of amazing athletes all around, long jumpers, sprinters. And I was just really interested in what's going on there. What, what training are they doing? What are some of the paradigms that they are working under? And so Joseph, uh, a little bit more of his own background too. He is currently the, phys the physical preparation coach for the Chinese Athletic Association's jump and sprint section. Uh, he handles the speed and power training for their best athletes. Uh, previously, he was the performance manager at the Chinese Olympic Committee's National Sports Training Center in Beijing with the lead up to the Rio Games He's also spent time as a performance manager with the Chinese Olympic Committee through EXOS. He's also had a long-time performance clinic in Queensland, Australia. 
So uh, just really kind of special chat today on a lot of levels. I always enjoy talking with people who are working with the best in the world, uh, giving little anecdotes there, learning more about the art and the science of what they're doing. So topics that we're going to cover today are numerous, kind of go full spectrum on things, but we're going to include uh, all the way from sand sprinting, uh, which is a little bit of Joseph's background, some of the sports they uh, did a little bit in uh, New Zealand and Australia. And then we're going to go into things like special strength for sprinters and jumpers, ideas on maximal strength for sprint athletes, complex training, when to use it and when not, ideas on jumps training and Joseph's maximal displacement, maximal displacement theory, a little bit of which you heard in that opening blurb, talking about building things from contact times out. And as opposed to that typical RSI where it's just go for max max power and that blend of contact time and height. How is event-specific work in track and field or any sport really different than a simple RSI? Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about hamstring training, which is really awesome, especially considering talking about elite athletes and the differences in hamstring training in someone who's running under 10 seconds in the 100-meter dash versus a team sport athlete who might not be cracking 9 meters per second on their field of play. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, Joseph's work with the 1080 sprint and the K-box. So uh, whether you're into track and field or just physical preparation in general, this is a really fascinating episode. Joseph has a lot of gold in terms of training ideas, some, some unique things in places that he's going, and just seeing how the inner runnings of athletes in China who are really being successful right now are going along. So really pleased to have you the, uh, bring you this episode, and let's get on to it. Episode 74 with Joseph Coyne. Joseph, great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here today. Mate, uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, so now that you're back from uh, China and the land of uh, Australia, uh, uh, could you just give me a little bit, uh, and the listeners out there, a little bit of background. So uh, where, what was your background briefly as an athlete, uh, and then what have been some of your recent exploits in the land of coaching? Yeah, cool. So, um, look, I grew up in New Zealand, and in New Zealand there's only one sport, and that's rugby union. Um, it's like ice hockey in Canada, so I grew up playing rugby union. Um, I, was really, I was reasonably fast um, in rugby union, and I actually, a, a guy I worked with, a, a track coach, Randy Hunting, and I always used to joke with him that I was uh, the third or fourth fastest on every team I was on um, when, when we'd, when we'd uh, trade notes on how fast we were back in, back in our heyday. But um, because I was... Uh, like a little bit, I guess, uh, above average in speed and whatnot. They, I got roped into doing New Zealand. You have surf life saving, which is another. Uh, it's a, it's a reasonably sized sport, probably bigger than track and field is in New Zealand. And um, so I got roped into. They do this thing called beat sprints. Um, so it's basically like a, it's like an 80 meter, but on the beach. And so I did that. And as a junior, and um, uh, we picked up like a couple of national relay titles and in, in under 19s, and then also at the um, open national level. Um, with the squad I was on, and I was by no means the fastest guy on that squad, but um, I, uh, I uh, was was part of it. Um, and um, from there, look, I, uh, I've worked. I've had a sports injury clinic. Uh, that's my sort of athletic background. From in terms of coaching, I've had a sports injury clinic um, as a business sports injury and performance clinic. Um, I've had uh, two different uh, gigs or jobs in China. One was with the Chinese Olympic Committee, and that was contracted through Exos and. Obviously, Exos is a bit of a track undercurrent uh, going through everything they do. Um, and there was a performance manager there at the National Sports Training Centre for the COC. So that was uh, that was a really cool job. And then from there, um, I moved into a job with the Chinese Athletics Association, um, their track and field federation, basically. 
as the physical preparation coach for their jump and sprint section. Um, so you're talking like 100 metres, 4 by 100 uh, long jump, high jump. Um, pole vault's part of it, but uh, I never had anything much to do with them besides hanging out with them and some high fives, that sort of thing. And um, because I spent so much time with the uh, long jumpers, I basically came Randy Huntington, who I was just mentioning before. He um, he was a coach uh, a coach of that team because I spent so much time with him. I basically became like the assistant long jump coach and his uh, his two IC. So that was a really really cool experience, and I uh, learned a truckload. And uh, it was a it was a really really valuable apprenticeship, not just for um, just being involved with track things, but all all aspects of performance and uh, and so on. So it was uh, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I think there's always something that's really valuable in terms of a, a coach who didn't grow up doing track per se, but but was able to have like really good mentorship in the field. Because I think like people who grew up doing track, it's always, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to coach with what I did and what I, you know, when I was an athlete and to be able to kind of skip all that. And, and I mean, track is such a simple, pure sport at, the, at its very heart, too. And to be able to kind of learn from the best, I, I think that's that's great. I also, I feel like a lot of track athletes really like that whole beach sprint thing. I, I mean, what what is that? Like, you just run back and forth on the beach or it's like a back and forth relay or something like that? Yeah, well, so, so there's a relay part and an individual part, part to it. Um, and uh, basically, the individual, they also have a thing called beach flag where you start on your stomach, you spin 180 degrees, and then sprint down maybe 15, uh, 15 um, meters and dive for uh, dive for these flags. And then they you know if you've got five people lined up, there'll only be four flags. And if there's two people lined up, there'll only be like in the last two, there's only one flag left. So, um, what, what normally happens, and I didn't I didn't mention this, but um, at my sort of sports performance injury clinic that I had, um, we actually trained a truckload of them in Australia. In Australia, you can be a professional athlete as a beach sprinter and a, and a beach flag guy, um, or as a beach flagger, I guess is what you'd call it. And um, yeah, the I trained a couple of world champions uh, beach sprinters and also um, beach flaggers. Um, and one girl in, in Australia, we have a thing called a stall gift. Uh, which is like a handicap sprint. It's our most famous sprint race uh, in track and field. Um, it's bigger than the uh, like national championships or anything like that, bigger prize money. And um, one of those girls actually won that. So a lot of uh, track athletes will cross over. Um, and and uh, pretty much a lot of the sprinters, especially if they're from Sydney or Brisbane or Queensland region, will have, will have started off or will have done beach sprinting. Um, like there's guys that have been on the 4x100 relay team for Australia that are that come from beach sprinting and uh, predominantly uh, beach sprinters most of the time. That's interesting. I, I figured too, like as long as you're sprinting on sand, you might as well throw a dive in there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, why, why yeah, not? for the flags, yeah. yeah. <laughs> why not? I, that's kind of cool. Like, what do you think too? Like just, uh, you know, being around that sport, it, it's kind of, I think there is always that talk. Uh, I think maybe it was Charlie Francis who mentioned like the benefits of running on grass, something to do with like the tendons or something like that. Do you think there's benefits to you know, taking some time to do sand type work for a track athlete and then coming back later? Or is it kind of, is it, is it really different or similar? I mean, how does that work itself in? Um, no, I, I definitely think there's benefits. Like um, in terms of propulsion, acceleration, obviously you're dealing with a surface that's not going to give you as much uh, force back. Um, so you've got to generate it, uh, generate it with, and there'll be slightly different mechanics, you know what I mean? But um, if you're... I wouldn't worry about that. An athlete will adapt to it, and it'll just make their their skill better at whatever surface they're running on. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's it's really valuable. Um, it's it's like doing resisted work, uh, in essence, um, for sprinting. So it could be used as like a special uh, a special exercise for sprinters, hundred percent. 
Yeah, I was. I've always been intrigued they, by they, that, that. Yeah, that resistance of sand. Like even just playing like sand when I was a track jumper in college, just playing sand volleyball intermurally in the in the fall was uh, in the off season. I always felt like that was a big benefit. I really enjoyed doing that stuff. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And obviously, there's things with contact times, and your contact times will be slower on the sand because of the surface and so on. And I, don't, I think it's important not to get too caught up and lose the forest full of trees uh, with those type of conversations. Uh, but it'll definitely benefit most people um, and most sprinters. I think there'll be uh, there'll be something you'll get out of it. Yeah, I could see that. Even too, like just the idea of even though the contact line time is longer because of the nature of the sand, the muscle has to react still really fast. It's not like mm-hmm. the body's still going to move as fast as it can do in the context of yeah. the surface. So, um, well, that's, that's awesome. I, I'd like to get into too some, uh, some specific questions on speed and sprinting and track and field. And, and I know a lot of the videos that you post are really intriguing to me. So, uh, could you tell me a little bit about some of the track athletes you were working with, um, in China and then uh, as well as some of the strength exercises and special strength exercises that you were using with them. Everyone's favorite topic always seems to be things that people do in the weight room, even though there's much more transfer in other specific things. But uh, could you just go into some of those topics? Yeah, 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 sure. So, so um, from from working, uh, working um, like say with Randy and uh, taking the boys through drills and whatnot. Like I'm the king of drills now. I'm uh, you, you name a drill and I can probably do it pretty well. Like, uh, but um, when it comes to actually sprinting fast. I still need to, you still need to do reps, you know what I mean? And uh, and same in the weight room, you can get strong as strong as shit in the weight room, but uh, if, if you're not um, actually out there sprinting, you have no transfer. But um, yeah, and with with uh, uh, so with CAA Chinese Athletic Association um, jump and sprint section, so I worked with uh, um, the long jump team. Obviously, there was there was sort of five guys in the top twenty in the world there at some stage last year, 2017, like the. Um, Wang Jianan was a bronze medalist at 2015 World Champs. Um, they actually had three, four, five at 2015 World Champs. Gaoxing Long and uh, Legion Juice, uh, Sunny. Um, there's another young kid uh, we call Rain, um, whose name is Shu uh, Hao, and he's uh, he had like an eight meter thirty jump at like age 18. So he's a sort of up and comer. He's a little nugget. They call him Little Rock. Um, uh, in the sprinters, I worked with the female sprint, like 4x100, um, and in particular, Gilkud Wei-Yong Lee, who's their fastest girl. Um, and the males, Subing Ten and Xi Jinye. Xi Jinye I did a, a lot of work with before 2016 Olympics and, and before um, before the uh, before the uh, track championships in, in uh, London in 2017. And, um, yeah, and then the high jumper, Jungle Wei. The real colourful, uh, colourful character that is uh, uh, Jungle Way. Um, so he's the guy that does the rips off his shirt at competitions, and he, unfortunately he hasn't gone too well in recent years. But he's he's an awesome guy, and uh, and um, he wants to be really good. So I think his his future will be okay. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about with the with the. I probably butchered the pronunciation, but yeah, he always has some interesting training training that he posts uh, videos of, and and yeah, it, it's quite prominent on uh, on Instagram, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like those videos. I'm always reposting them. I, I think they're really interesting, and like the, it seems like there's definitely like a high in the coaching structure there. There's a lot of um, attention paid to transfer, like the things that you see them doing. Like there's, it seems like there's some very distinctive intent there behind pretty much everything. 
Yeah, mate. So I, I learned a truckload, not just from Randy, but also just um, working with some of the other coaches, um, like the sprint coaches and the, the high jump coach, and learned how learning how they used bands, learning how they used, um, say, ankle weights or or different different things. And it was yeah, it was really interesting, really interesting. Um, how and and it, it really um, like it added things to my practice, I guess you'd say, um, and and how to approach things, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we could go into a few of those. I mean, you had mentioned ankle weights. And so what are some things like, what are some of the biggest things that uh, Joseph Coyne uh, leaving China uh, took with him versus when you went in there? Yeah, sure. So I guess when I went in there, um, I'd always had an understanding that you've got to kind of develop, you've got this force velocity curve, right? Um, and you've got powerlifting at the top, like squat, deadlift, bands, and you've got Olympic lifting next down the rank. That is then, then as you move faster, you've got some throws, then your jumps, then your sprints at the at the at the velocity side of it. Um, and when I first went in there, I was I was of the mind that um, you, you kind of want to bring those things up equally, and the, you move everything to the to the uh, to the right um, as you as you progress. Um, and then, like I'd always thought about the special stuff, and but may, maybe I or, or or manipulating that force velocity curve. But now my philosophy is definitely once you've done that, you've got to do that with with any beginning athlete. Once you've done it, you have to try and bump that force velocity curve at uh, the position you 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 compete at. So if you're a sprinter, you've got to do um, sprinting that's a little bit faster than what you can sprint at. Sprinting that's uh, um, that's uh, assisted, sprinting that's resisted, a little bit slower than what you can sprint at, sprinting that's a bit lighter than what you normally, your, your body weight, sprinting that's a bit heavier than your body weight to actually get those changes in the force velocity uh, curve right at that specific junction of it. Um, like for instance, if you're jumping, you gotta do something assisted, assisted jump, you gotta do some resisted jumping, you gotta do some um, jumps faster than what you'd normally do them, you gotta do some jumps a little bit slower than what you'd normally do them. Um, to, to get those benefits, and then once you have that sort of philosophy, and uh, you, you can even call it basic periodization, you know what I mean? It's basic, like we start just moving everything to the right, and then we start focusing on that particular part of the uh, of the force velocity curve. Um, you can once you have that notion, that's when you go, okay, we're going to use a weighted vest, um, we're going to use an empty barbell on the back, or an empty barbell overhead, or we're going to use uh, ankle weights, or we're going to use wrist weights. Um, just to just to modify the force velocity curve at or around uh, where you, where you, uh, where you're competing, the attributes you want to develop. Yeah. So so would you say that uh, that's that's really good stuff? Right? So based off of what you're saying, you're kind of saying that when you, as opposed to when you went in there, your so specificity becoming a, a greater uh, of of more importance. But and I guess maybe the old school or at least the American way, I think is is you know base of strength and then get faster as you go along you're kind of saying you're doing more of that special strength and specific strength things throughout the year yeah a hundred percent i so that's another thing i'm like i it depends on the athlete too like i'm uh you've got to do a needs analysis on the athlete so if the we, we know that if they're not strong that you probably you're probably your your main priority might be getting them strong to start with, um, up to a certain level. Maybe it's 180 percent of body weight back squat um, as a first as a as a priority. But then I know I know a lot of real, like championship uh, medalists at the world championship that aren't that strong. Um, so it's not the be all and end all. But 
maybe that's where you start but it doesn't mean you you only do that stuff you know what i mean you maybe it's just like a 60 40 ratio or a 70 30 ratio or even a 50 50 ratio depending on the athlete depending on what type of person they are they're a real elastic guy are they a powerful guy like it, all those things come into it and uh but it, it's just uh how you start with with when you first start with someone i'd try and develop probably all those things equally and then i'd move more and more down to that specific curve, specific part of that force velocity curve for the uh, for the athlete. Yeah, I, so like a concurrent model, you know what I mean? Charlie Francis, blah blah blah, really similar. Yeah, so kind of like a vertical integration. So all those special, the assisted and the resisted, that's all in there. It's just in different emphasis throughout the year, but it's always like present. It's always something that is being worked on in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, I think so, and maybe not for like the first, I don't know, four weeks of a guy coming back from training after an off season. You know what I mean? But but on the whole, it's in there. I, I don't think you have time to waste. You know what I mean. And uh, like I said, I mentioned you'd lose the forest for the trees if you're um, farting around in the weight room trying to come up with some magical exercise and they're not doing sprinting when uh, you probably need to be sprinting or doing things around that that uh, forced time uh, sort of characteristic uh, to get the get some adaptations that you want. Yeah, yeah. I imagine you don't. I mean, it, it does when you think of all the things you can do in special strength, the resisted and the assisted sprinting and you have something like the 1080 sprint to work with and you have, can fine-tune all these things around your competitive event, I think that that um, that need, that that like feeling to try to get really extra fancy in the weight room, I think does tend to fade away a little bit because uh, you, you, when you can kind of see the whole picture. Uh, but do you, I mean, even so, I mean, are there, what was, and, and you mentioned this, you said that there were some great sprinters who were pretty strong, but you said there were others who weren't like the more elastic people. Uh, so what was, uh, I'll make this a twofold question. So what was kind of your take on, uh, maximal strength for some of those guys? Like, I mean, were there some really high, I know, and I know China had some really fast, uh, people last year, really fast. Um, what were your observations in some of those best sprinters in terms of strength levels? And then was there any, uh, like special strength stuff that you were trying to fit in there to kind of like fill in little gaps? Yeah, sure. So I guess I'll give you an example of Subing 10, and he's a guy that's run a couple of times under 10 seconds, a, a couple of times when they ate it as well. On top of that, he was a, he was a finalist in 2015 and 2017 in the World Champs. Um, but uh, his, and, and it, this is a really interesting one, like he's a guy, a top-level guy that I believe, and it's just my opinion, um, maybe other people have other opinions, um, but he's a guy that maximal strength training would actually work pretty well for. He's a guy that keeps acceleration mechanics, which is more dependent on force um, pretty much the whole way down the track in the 100. Um, you know what I mean? And he never really gets elastic in the hamstring or is able to generate elastic stuff going on. So maybe that's uh, like a technical thing. Maybe that uh, if he just keeps it and doesn't change it, maybe getting him stronger, like he, he'll do hand cleans with uh, – I'll, I'll give you an example. So he'll do hand, hand cleans with like 60 kgs, which isn't – isn't very much it's just an example um there's other considerations there like lower back stuff going on blah 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 but he would uh generally compared to the other sprinters she and yeah he's also gone under 10 seconds a couple of times and um maybe they're both one dated from memory but uh he won the national championships in china this year bet so um which is a bit of a ball over but he um share is much stronger than sue even though sue is body type his uh, like he's shorter. He's got shorter levers. He should be much stronger in the weight room than Shear, but they'll produce similar amounts of power. Even though Shear's lifting at a heavier weight, obviously it's it's easier up to a point to produce power at a heavier weight. 
than Sue, then, and Sue, they'll produce the same amount of power, but Sue's using it with a lighter weight, so it's high velocity power, versus uh, Shares using a, a heavier weight, and it's, it's maybe it's medium velocity power, whatever you grade it with. Um, but he's a, he's a guy where definitely like maximal strength for him would be a really important consideration. Versus someone like Shear, maximal strength's not an important consideration anymore because he's strong enough, you know what I mean? Most of the... Um, the long jumpers are, are starting to get strong enough now. Um, I'd consider them strong enough. Like uh, we do an exercise, like a 20 centimeter um, dynamic step up, like a heavy one. Um, and a lot of those guys can handle around three times body weight uh, with that, um, which is a, it's a really good tell on, on how strong they are and, and what their trunk and uh, legs are capable of handling in terms of forces and so on. And we, we're like, um, there's other considerations like uh, the use of pneumatics would use, but yeah, I think maximum strength does play a part, especially in like coming out of the blocks, maybe one or two steps, um, leaving the board. Uh, but then it's it's that's all it plays a part, and once you once you get in there, it's uh, but but then the, there's those mechanical considerations of how a guy runs and and where you, uh, where you need to think or how can I uh, improve his times like. If, if Sue keeps acceleration mechanics or something similar to acceleration mechanics all the way down the track, but he's not producing enough force into the ground and is required sort of 80 to 90 millisecond timestamp on the ground, um, maybe the maximal strength training will help that. Maybe. I don't know. But it's a, it's a road that you might want to consider going down. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I from what I've seen of Sue, I mean, he's a tremendous accelerator. I feel like when I watch, uh, when I've watched some of those uh, championship races, it seems like he's the first guy to twenty or thirty uh, compared to everyone else. And you're saying he's not the he's not the strongest guy compared to some of the other the other sprinters. No, it, it, well, no, not at all. That's yeah, that's interesting because I, I think a lot of times we think of people who have just ridiculous acceleration and think, oh, they must be much stronger than other people like they must they must have better weight room numbers but I, that would be an athlete where that's definitely not the case nah so shorter like i said he's got better lever lengths to accelerate you know what i mean like he's a he's a shorter guy and he like like you said he's got one of the best starts in the world um but uh yeah no nah, in the in the weight room there's there's definitely room for improvement um in my opinion uh that that will probably benefit his his uh, sporting skill you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Interesting. So you mentioned uh, the dynamic step up on the 20 centimeter box. Is there some kind of KPIs that you guys are looking for for some of these? And I'm sure they're a little bit different between a long jumper and a sprinter. But are there any weight room uh, key performance indicators that you guys do look at when you're looking at the strength levels of your sprinters? Yeah. So with the sprinters, um, just so sprinters, just as a as a ballpark, I'd use like a body weight back squat, a body weight um, squat jump with a like a three second pause in the bottom, um, and look at speeds doing that, like wanting to get their speeds uh, above two point two, two point four milliseconds, um, and also their height, their jump height at least above sort of twenty five centimeters um, with that body weight. Uh, body weight back squat um, or body weight squat jump. So you put, if you're 90 kgs, you put 90 kgs on your back, squat down to 90 degrees sort of thing. Um, you can do this in a split as well if you want to replicate the the starting uh, position, whatever. Um, stay there for three seconds and then uh, jam out of it. Um, that dynamic step up, three times body weight. A lot of stuff on the, on the pneumatic like Kaiser squat would look at um, getting uh, power above 70 watts per kg would be another thing that I'd look at pretty seriously. Um, 
but again, it depends on the athlete. Sometimes all I was doing with the guys was making sure that, like, I can have all these awesome, uh, oh, yeah, we're going to get you to this and that in the, in the weight room. But sometimes you've got a hamstring problem. I've got to help you deal with that hamstring problem and rehab that. Um, so this stuff is, uh, <laughs> and you've got to keep competing. So we're, we're nursing that through the season and, um, and we do what we can. But that's not our main goal. Our main goal is to make sure that hamstrings, the hamstring's good for you. Yeah, uh, actually, I wanted to get to a hamstring question, so I'm gonna make a note to to ask you that in just a second. But uh, so you mentioned, uh, yeah, like a like a fairly light squat jump for max power. Now, when those guys are in there, uh, are they? And I'm sure it depends on the time of year, but I mean, are they like heavy versus light loads? Is there a kind of a what what's that ratio look like when those guys are are training in the weight room? It depends on depends on the athlete. Um, depends on where they are. Like, say, if the, a guy like Sue, he might have a one to one ratio of. So basically, my my strength, my like non technical training, is actually light technical training. But I call it non technical training. It's, it's really simple. It's either a max strength day or it's a power day. And so one one day is the goal is to lift as heavy as possible. The other day is to lift um, as powerfully as possible. So, but on both days, we might have like velocity, like VBTs or gym awares or things like that on there um, just to make sure that they're moving fast. Um, but one will be so, sort of above that peak power weight and one might be at that peak power weight or below that peak power weight, depending on what's going on. Um, but uh, yeah, so basically those will be your two days. Maybe some weeks we have two power days, one max strength day, maybe some weeks we have one max strength, one power day. Maybe some weeks we don't have much time or it's like we need to give them some rest. So you do a bit of power and a bit of max strength on the same day just as a way of keeping it going um, throughout the season. But that's sort of generally what it'll look like. I use a lot of contrast stuff. Like even on the max strength day, I'll pair it with like a max strength lift with a, what I call a slow jump, like a dip jump. Um, on your power days, those dip jumps might become drop jumps, you know what I mean, for a, trying to keep it under sort of 120 milliseconds or displacement at 100, 120 milliseconds, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's all these, uh, all these considerations. Um, and I think probably something that's another thing that, that I'll come back to, I talked about needs analysis and we talked about some markers and I, I, I should explain this a bit more um, carefully maybe. Basically, I Randy influenced me heaps with this, but we were playing around with like a PS Amazinos and JB Morin's um, force velocity profiling, especially with the jumpers. And like obviously that is a 0, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100% of body weight jump. Um, and you look at look at the height and you get the, your force and your velocity from it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's a bilateral jump. It's um, it's a loaded one. Um, you're, you can compare an unloaded one with zero. But that's only going to tell you part of the story. And I actually recreated that app in, a, in Excel um, and basically took all their calculations out of uh, out of their studies so I could play around with the angles. So obviously, for a, it's based in the app, if you're not familiar with it, it's you punch in these different heights from it, and but it's based off a 90-degree pro, uh, projection angle. So the projection angle is, is, is great if you're playing basketball, great if you're playing volleyball, which is a bilateral vertical jump. But if you're a sprinter coming out of the blocks, that's like a 40-degree uh, angular projection. If you're a long jumper, it's like a 20 to 25, maybe a bit higher angular projection, depending on like what type of jump you are, etc., or what your technique's like. So I had, to, I had to play around with basically the radian um, 
in that calculation and recreate those calculations just so I could figure that out for the jumpers versus the sprinters. And the sprinters I used obviously the 40 degrees, the jumpers I used 25 or 24. Um, and then, but as we're playing around with it, I was like, there's still holes there. Um, there's other jumps that are important that are really good markers. Um, obviously, like a, a 10 second repeated jump or like a 10 jump as fast as possible is is, uh, is really important. That's related to maximal velocity. Um, the uh, we would use a depth jump, a 40 centimeter depth jump, and a takeoff leg. Displacement in that um, was another uh, at a certain contact time was another one that was um, really important. And what I did basically, we looked at maybe four or five of those different jumps, including the ones I mentioned, like 100% body weight, um, nothing with body weight, or sorry, uh, just body weight, counter, counter movement jump, um, your uh, your uh, dip jump and takeoff leg, and your 10-second um, your, uh, repeater jump is the sort of main four that I'd look to base training decisions off. And then I you create effect sizes or Z scores against the best person in the group. Um, that sort of tells you what people need to focus on. So some people might be doing more depth jumps than their takeoff legs. Some people might be doing uh, more 10-second repeated jumps because they're not as elastic. Some people – so you're, you're trying to bring everybody up to the best person in that in that uh, squad. And I was lucky to have quite a few sort of subjects or I'll call them subjects that I could uh, look at and get some get some numbers off. And maybe the only consideration I'll make for the sprinters is they wouldn't do a counter-movement jump. They'll do a non-counter-movement jump just because – that type of stuff's going to help their start the most. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and, and even with the, the difference between a standing vertical jump and jumping off the run is is massive. So it's, I think it's really great that you were able to incorporate all that. And I think that's, uh, track and field jumps coaches are always kind of trying to, they all, it's almost like they all have their own little shtick, you know, like 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 this kind of jump or this this type of jump series transfers and this test transfers and that's that's really cool to see what you were doing with your athletes and how you know not every athlete has the same needs and in jump testing and so i i like that a lot yeah 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 so like i guess we were lucky that there was five guys in the top 20 in the world this year so there i had a pretty good like comparison between an elite group to say like this is this is what the best guy and and two that's the best guys at those jumps might not be the best long jumpers, you know what I mean? They might, or they might not produce the best results because obviously the the only thing that uh, is really specific to long jumpers is the long jump. Yeah. Like uh, even a even short approach jumping, a twelve step or sixteen step is still not the same as a as a full approach. Um, so yeah, it's uh, th- that was really interesting and and yeah, yeah it's. Hopefully those things help them, um, like the other types of jumps and the other type of uh, movements, um, and you you keep working on it to try and to try and make that transfer as great as possible. Going back to what you had mentioned earlier, and it's like the longer I've been in, specifically been a strength coach as opposed to a full time track coach, I. I've felt this more and more strongly here from a lot of people, but the idea of if you're going to do weightlifting or heavy weightlifting, particularly, you kind of like sandwich it or, or, or complex it with something fast. Uh, and it sounds like that. So it sounds like you're doing that in almost all your w- sessions where you're going pretty heavy then. Yeah. No, normally it would be, would have some, something. So, sometimes we wouldn't like it depended on the time of year and, and what, was having like were they doing weight training straight after a technical session was weight training in a separate training block like say they're technical training in the morning then weight training in the afternoon like all those considerations come into it like it's it's the nature of sport it's not like you've got this perfect technical uh 
or perfect theoretical model that you apply to all athletes in all locations. Like maybe in Beijing, when the uh, when the pollution's low, we do long jump outside. But when the pollution's high, if it's planned, maybe we do something else. You know what I mean? That's practicalities of uh, even elite sport coaching. Um, so yeah, it's it's. But I do I do think that. Uh, you, you want to spend time, like it goes back to that velocity curve, and you want to spend the majority of your time at or around close to where those athletes are. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll like say, even if you're looking at RSIs, I actually think RSIs are not a really, um, I, I think you, you should, instead of an RSI, you should look at uh, contact times, maximal displacement at certain contact times, which is essentially like an RSI, but you can have a, a really low displacement, a really low jump, but you've got a great uh, contact time or really short contact time, and that'll give you a really great. Like I find that it's a little bit biased. The the just the typical flight time divided by contact time or contraction time with the force plate. So, I the other thing is like you look into um, like sprinting is sort of 80 to 100 milliseconds of maximum velocity. You're, on the jump mats, you're probably going to get about 120 milliseconds. Um, off the off the board is about 120 milliseconds or 140. Um, so you look at those sort of contact times for for your athletes and try and maximising displacement at those contact times. Um, and I've sort of gone off the ball from using contrasting exercises, but yeah, you, you've got to you've got to start tie, tying it back to that. You know what I mean? Um, otherwise, you yeah, because your strength work will will once they're strong enough, that's that that's it. You're you're like you have. Um, diminishing returns from from that point on. Yeah, I'm actually I'm glad you said that about the RSI because I've found that myself. The more as I've gone down the line, like progressing from just jump to some of the more advanced uh, contact mats out there, you you do notice like if you just think minimal ground contact time above all else, that usually yields the highest RSI on many of those. But then it's like, well, you jump so low, <laughs> how are we really in the ballpark of that sweet spot? Uh, so it's yeah. a good, it's a good consideration. I've always thought about that because once athletes, because athletes are so competitive too, like they just want to, if they're like, okay, this is the test, I'm going to do as good as I can on this. And that means don't jump high, just be like a lightning off this thing, which again, I think there is some, certainly some good of that. I, one of the things I was doing with the just jump mat, I, I got, I got really upset with the just jump mat because they took out the plyo contact time. And maybe I'm on that tangent because I was talking about that in my last podcast with Don Chu. Uh, but I was getting to the point where I was uh, doing like the four jump, but just like being as, but not even trying to get the highest score you could just like see how fast you get on the contact time for like a fast beat variable, which is a totally different, it's a totally different exercise and movement, but it, you don't jump high at all. And it's, it's a, it's a little bit different ball game there. Sure, sure. So I think for just from a coaching like consideration, it has to be maximal displacement at set contact times. Yes, yes. Um, is, is is what it should move to. Um, and then like I know the smart uh, speed system with smart jump um, from Fusion Sport in Australia, you can set the contact time. So if they if that like you can set if they go too fast or too slow on the floor, um, and that's a really cool way of teaching the teaching the athlete how much feel they have to have for the ground. You know what I mean? Because um, and how much they there they get it, how much knee extension they get, like how much they feel the ground to get off it, how much force they use, and uh, within that time constraint. So that's a pretty cool thing. Um, 
yeah, but just as, a, as an aside. Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. I mean, that's almost the future where I think it would be heading. Like the perfect world would be you do your event, like your long jump or your high jump or whatever it is, and then instantly an athlete get instant feedback of how long they spent on the ground and you know kind of where they should be and, and those types of things and, and fully integrated. And obviously you couldn't just – like if it's high jump, you're not gonna you're not gonna make the bar if you just go for a dead minimum, you know. Like, mm-hmm. at least you might, but it might be so fast that you mess up your technique. And so, it, keeping it in context, I I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I talked about that just for like a weight room example, or like on the side, like a jumping, like assisted or like non technical jumping example on the side. But we I do that with the guys with um, I just use the my jump app. Um, which is your uh, 240 frame per second camera, so you can calculate contact times by using it in a slightly different way than what it's intended to, um, and uh, set it up. And um, so I did that with Jungle Way, the high jumper, and also a couple of the long jumpers. Um, one long jumper, uh, he was spending too short a time on the board, um, so that was a real technical thing we got out of that quantitative analysis, I'll call it. Um, where in his in his training, his his contact time instead of being about it was like maybe a hundred milliseconds, one hundred and ten milliseconds on the board, and uh, that was too fast for him to generate enough vertical impulse to actually go go uh, as far as what he could have. So he was just scudding along, worm burning, even though he still jumped, he was like still an eight meter twenty um, odd jumper. But he, you know what I mean? It can be uh, that stuff can definitely inform even even the elite guys, and you don't need um, you can do it with an iPhone now, which is awesome. Oh yeah. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, I've I've done stuff like that with my iPad. Yeah, and it's 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 amazing how nice cameras and fast those cameras are. Yeah, just throw the coach's eye in there, and it takes a little bit longer than a jump map. But it's I mean, it's not like you're trying to jump like it's not like you're, everyone's doing the two minute drill, like jumping, <laughs> jumping seven mm-hmm. times in two minutes. Um, what was I gonna say? Uh, that's uh oh yeah that reminded me too uh with uh, yeah damn path like like most jumpers are like at least on the intermediate level like everyone needs to be faster but i know damn path i remember him talking about like long jumpers or maybe it's pole vaulters specifically people that were too fast like all the coaches would say was fast last step and faster off the board and then but there's people who are too quick off there and they in their last step and so it's always interesting to hear those anecdotes yeah, hundred percent. Like if you don't spend enough contact, if you don't spend enough time on the ground, you're not going to generate the same amount of force as the guy that does spend the optimal amount of time on the ground. Um, and that's a that's a really big consideration. And uh, yeah, when you start, like obviously speed's like ninety percent of the long jump. Um, your speed in the last ten meters is ninety percent of your final result. But there's still those uh, those final factors. And I think that's one thing uh, Randy did really really well with. Like all our guys became well, some of them were already fast, obviously, but they all improved their speed really well. Most of them could run on the 4x100 for... Uh, three of them could probably run on the 4x100 for China um, with the times that they'll plot. Uh, so uh, they were all pretty quick. Yeah, the... Uh, well, I, I actually, I wanted to kind of follow up with some of the speed training, but before I, before I do... Actually, I did want to go back to that uh, the complex training because you mentioned there'd be times where you do just kind of just a strength training session, and it might be in context of another session you had on the day. And that it is something that I've thought about a lot is is when to implement and when not to implement complex training because I mean it would e- it would be easy to say, and maybe it's not a bad thing. Let's just do complex training all year. Let's just do French contrast all year every time we're in the weight room. Um, I was talking doing a little um, exchange on on Christian Thibodeau's forum uh, where he was talking about like those 
like the different types of athletes from the neurotransmitter level, like your, your super fast wired, you know, like one, a athlete versus the people who are more elastic and then more muscle driven. And, and in that exchange, it, he had kind of said that, that, that super, but almost like maybe he's called like the Ben Johnson type, like this, the, the muscular sprinter, the muscular wired sprinter wouldn't, do best to always do complex training and and hopefully i'm not getting in a tangent here i'm just really interested in this stuff uh so uh is there could you give maybe some specific examples and thoughts behind when you might use it and when you might not yeah so again it comes back to the practical realities of coaching as well there's only so much time within a session um and then also if you're leading into a competition you might do less of that complex stuff because they're doing their jumping anyway Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and the the main form of jumping is their is their um, is their technical training? So maybe you've got to be wary of overloading that aspect for the athlete in that time. So like as we did, it was interesting between 2016 Olympics and 2017 World Championships. Like we changed the approach where we basically ended up doing like a a um, a hand clean to a split, a um, dynamic step up, and a hip thrust. Um, for their strength training without much complex stuff going on. We just let the technical training and the jumps were doing technical training. We did do a couple of hurdle jumps maybe before that, but we wouldn't go like an A1, A2 or things like that in in the last sort of block preparation versus in the, in before the Rio, we, we did a heap of that stuff. Um, Part of it, I think is just the psychological aspect to the, not so much neurotransmitter profiling or anything like that, but, it's just a slight change for the athlete where they might be getting sick of a certain like a certain routine of training and you've got to keep them maybe a little bit fresh somehow so you move into that like there's all these other factors that come into it um i i i think that those um that neurotransmitter stuff's really interesting uh, but uh again you do your needs analysis and see what the athlete needs and that's predominantly what you're gonna what you're gonna do or focus on so if you think they need more of that um jumping stuff less, less maximal strength stuff doesn't matter if they're elastic non-elastic guys you you do that with them if, if you're working in elite level uh sprint and jump all of them are going to be pretty elastic all of them are going to be pretty powerful like ben johnson you can call him a powerful like Thing, but he'll be pretty freaking elastic you know what i mean as uh compared to like a like a, a another athlete um so it's it, yeah it, it, it depends and you're also working with a real special subgroup of the population in, in that uh in with with elite sprinters and jumpers where maybe that doesn't matter as much compared to a team sport where you might have slow twitch guys fast twitch guys um guys that are dull as dull as anything on the ground, guys that come off the ground like a, like a lightning bolt, um, guys that can feel the ground, all that, all that type of stuff versus in sprint and jump, you, you don't get that much variability. Um, there's also things like genetic stuff that I think like in team sports could be really interesting. Um, there's been papers out recently where people improve the counter movement jump with three by 10 to 12 reps, 12 to 15 reps, 15 to 20 reps. It's like a two-week periodization for each of those. Um, when they are matched to a genetic profile that they're predominantly slow twitch people or the genetic uh, thing came up with, with slow twitch and the mismatched people that did like three by fives or five by fives or five by threes, um, which should improve the strength and whatnot, didn't improve them because their genetics were aligned to more um, 
more what what we would think would be traditional like muscle endurance training but improved these other factors so i think in like in, in sports that have more of a diverse uh population group um then yeah that, those considerations are really really uh, can be really important in sports that like the elite sprint and jump like it's uh maybe not so important because you've got the same people you know what i mean they're all fast as shit uh, most of them and uh and they're all pretty springy and wiry, and you've got differing degrees of that, but uh, it's it's generally generally pretty similar. Interesting. Uh, did you ever do? I remember I was uh, I, when I was at Wisconsin Lacrosse doing my masters. I had heard uh, Andrew Rock was the uh, Division three, the only guy who's ran forty four seconds in the four hundred in Division three, and he was always a guy who, or he had. I remember he had mentioned uh, like enjoying doing just the regular lifting in the morning and then running later in the afternoon doing a sprints in the afternoon and feeling more power there like is there did you guys play around with those types of things or would that be a would that uh like even a standalone like doing a standalone like before you would go out in the day before you go out and sprint later or how did those sessions fall in context of the sprint workouts yeah so generally we'd always do our sort of strength and power sessions after the technical training like sprinting or the or the or the technical jumping um and obviously the sprint and power sessions would contain a heck of a lot of jumping just not maybe like approach jumping or or um coming off the board sort of thing but there'd be different bounds and uh bounds off boxes into the pit all that type of stuff um but yeah generally it'd always be afterwards and that that would even do it after like say if the guys had this was a great lesson for me. We there was, I think it was program four by one twenties with like a ten minute uh, ten minute rest, and then we're going to suppose we were supposed to, and I'm doing like the um, parentheses <laughs> with my fingers right now. We were supposed to go and do maximal strength afterwards, um, and uh, mate, there's no way we could have taken the guys anywhere. They were just ruined, um, just with the the times they were running. Like it was it was pretty high speed. I think in like it was in the in the twelves for the hundred and twenty seconds or maybe the low thirteens and uh, it was um yeah there was no there was no way we're doing anything with them afterwards. So that you got again those practical considerations that uh, you you gotta take into account. Mm-hmm. It depends. Some some of them might have been able to do it, but uh, the majority of them were like crawling around on the floor going, <laughs> I can't and it was only like four hundred and eighty meters, you know what I mean, of actual total volume, but it was just pretty pretty intense, yeah. Um, especially for a long jumper. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so th- there's ma- mainly it would be afterwards. It would be afterwards. But then on the next day, like um, one thing that I I think is set up that I think worked well for us this year for a certain period. We had a, a tempo day in the afternoon, uh, technical like training the next morning, and a strength or power workout that um, that uh, afternoon, and that that worked pretty well um for a period like i felt it worked pretty well and but there's we, we used all sorts of combinations like sometimes it would be uh, um generally uh, your strength and power and the and the sprinting would be on the same day or the technical jumping would be on the same day um and but we we might do contrast with that where you'd use something like a 1080 or something like that to, they might do a, a resisted um sprint on the 1080 and then go straight into approach work uh, things like that so you, you're still getting strength training in there but it's just in a in a like a maybe a more specific form if you want to call it that yeah yeah different package i i like that a lot and i i, I do agree there's no there's definitely no black and white exactly and, and every athlete situation can certainly be different but i really like some of those examples you gave and specifically kind of uh how those the, i always like to hear the nuts and bolts and how those schemes set themselves up 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I, for me, that's that's the biggest thing I'm interested in now. Me personally, is how to how do other coaches structure their weeks? Um, is is probably probably the the biggest interest point for me. How do they uh, where do they put speed? Where do they put their strength? Um, and then if they change it, why do they change it? Um, and uh, that, that's really interesting. Like, is it is it changed because of something like a objective measurement tool, like a mega wave or something like that, or is it changed because they just didn't really feel the guys were going good over those next two or three over over those last two or three weeks, and they just need a change? Is it changed because the athletes getting bored, and uh, or is it changed just due to logistics? You don't have a good weight room where you're training, so you gotta you gotta come up with something else. Um, but yeah, that, that, those things really interest me for sure. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, um, I so I'd like to get more into, and, and I agree. I those are my favorite conversations is is the nuts and bolts because I feel like anybody, uh, like what what did you do and what are the results you got? It's easy to talk about overarching philosophies, but at the end of the day, it's it's just about kind of what works and what doesn't, and how did you adjust and how did you do various things. So I I like that stuff as well. Uh, I'd like to get into, uh, so I'd like to talk to you actually quickly about uh, your use with inertial training, K-Box, uh, with some of your athletes. How are you How are you using that in the strength work that you were doing? Um, so, yeah, I, I use that heats for hamstring, um, hamstring preparation, hamstring rehabilitation. Uh, I actually found it really similar. I don't know if you've seen it, but you can hold a barbell and then drop the barbell and catch it in the bottom of like an RDL position. Um, and it creates a really nice sort of eccentric um, eccentric uh, rate of force development type effect with that and I found it really similar to that um, except maybe there's not so much of a learning curve with the K-Box um, so that's a cheap alternative to a K-Box I suppose is you do eccentric drops with barbells or, or things like that which can be pretty cool but no the K-Box I really like for the eccentric uh, hamstring stuff we did it we did we didn't do we spent a period with uh, squats with it um but I think we maybe Jungle Way actually broke the uh, broke the K box at our facility. Um, so uh, so yeah, there was. But yeah, we, we tried a different variations. Like we tried split, uh, like squats in a split. We tried squats like the lateral squats. We tried a few other things. But I mainly used it for an RDL or a single leg deadlift type of thing for preparation for the hamstrings. Yeah, I, I when I first got mine and I was working with some of the sprinters uh, that I was working with at the time, the first thing I had them do, I, I I wasn't I was just starting to use that thing, but the first thing was an, an RDL with just like the 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 middle wheel, like just because it just looked like good, it just looked like dynamic explosive hip hinging. There was something to to that that the sprinters seemed to be able to do pretty well. So I I like that a lot. Yeah, and I think with. Um... With the uh, hamstring stuff, especially injury prevention, because at that maybe at that like uh, uh, like level with sprint and jump athletes, you, your biggest job is stopping them from getting injured, and all of them have troubles with hamstrings. Uh, you know what I mean? Like that's just a, that's just the nature of the beast. So you do your best, and I think the eccentric variables like eccentric strength, and we know like. Um, Dave Opar is a guy here from Australia who's uh, – and Anthony Shields, another guy, very big uh, hamstring researchers. Um, they've got their little quadrant of doom where you've got fascial length and eccentric strength, basically. You, if you've got uh, short fascial length and uh, low eccentric strength, you're, you're not very uh, – or you're very likely to, to suffer a hamstring injury versus somebody that has – high uh, fascial length or long fascial length and high eccentric strength. So I think that K-Box can be 
but that was my main reason for using it was to bring up the eccentric strength and it's because it's a, just a different type of um eccentric contraction you know what i mean it stimulates the the hamstrings differently than doing an rdl it stimulates mm. differently than doing a pneumatic uh, version um and even from doing a drop so it's just a bit of it's some variation there with uh to, to help that eccentric strength especially around the hip extensors yeah, I, I agree. I, I like it for that. I've, I've even tried it too where you're on your stomach and you have a little ankle attachment on and you're try, kind of doing the like the manual or the knee curl, but uh, yeah. try to have someone like manually throwing your leg forwards and those types of things. It's a little awkward, but I, I when I do set that up, I think it's a really interesting exercise and has some uh, good potential benefits there too. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I didn't, I didn't get around to using it for that. Um, I mainly just used either Nordics or, and I couldn't do too many Nordics with the guys because it would uh, blow them up too much in the back of the knee. Huh. Um, but uh, like manual eccentrics where they come up by themselves, no weight, and then I'd push down on their on their ankle. You know what I mean? Real simple stuff like physical therapy stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, I did a heap of that and I, I think that uh, not just with the hamstrings but also other hip muscles, I think that, uh, that helped a lot. Interesting. I so you said uh, so the the regular Nordic hamstrings are kind of bugging the athletes in the back of the knee. So you what was the setup that you had instead there? Oh, so just as a progression before they started doing Nordics, um, I would like it, we would start with Nordic isometric holds, two legs, one leg. Um, then, but also they'd either lie prone, and I'd do like a, a manual. Um, eccentric hamstring curl basically where i would push down on the athlete and then they'd bring the bring the ankle back up um knee flex to bring the ankle back up for themselves and then we'd also flip them over onto their stomach where they're at uh 90 degrees at the hip and do the same thing they only work the eccentric contraction because one thing with all the fascial length uh, research is there's a little bit of conjecture out, out this out there about it but isometrics can actually shorten the fascial length which may predispose you to uh, injury um, so but versus eccentrics definitely seem to lengthen it um, so if a guy was too weak to do the eccentric eccentric nordics um, i'd do maybe isometric nordics and then also get them on the table doing the eccentric versions just to make sure i tick that box from a fascial length uh, point of view and and um, also developing that eccentric strength point of view that's yeah that's really interesting i i i, I asked that question too because i've kind of uh, I remember I was at, uh, I don't know if it was the, I don't think it was the podcast, but Mike Boyle did with me. I think it was somebody else's, but he was talking about how Nordics are just, they're a great exercise, but they're way too intense for so many people. And, uh, especially if you are in the camp where your hamstrings aren't that strong. Like I know, like when I do them, I always feel if I really go for it, I just start feeling it in the back of my knee. Cause I don't think I'm strong enough to handle the full, you know, the full chach, if you will. So I'm always looking at people's progressions. I think that's, that's really cool. Yeah, the the other real consideration with anything like Nordic, so there's been research showing like high volume, 100 reps per week versus low volume, 8 reps per week. And the 8 rep versus high versus 100 rep per week gives you about similar changes yeah. um, in eccentric strength and fascial length. So I always, and I think also if you're running above 10 meters per second, your hamstrings are um, predisposed to being fragile just at those speeds because I, I know... Um, like colleagues of mine and in team sports, guys can do Nordics all day and no problems. But they, like a fast guy in team sport, might might be over nine meters per second, you know. Um, 
versus guys that are really getting up there and and really uh, and I know there's a relative thing to it that you got to consider, but guy above that. 10 minutes second mark I think there's a fragility element to the hamstrings and uh, you've got to respect that Um, and so I would use like two sets of three or two sets of four and all it is is fascial length and eccentric strength and uh, and um, well I had issues with it Um, some of the time there were guys that had sort of meniscal problems that would flare them up and we had to modify things and work around things and uh, but that's that's the nature of life Um, but yeah I, I go with a low volume approach and maybe even start off with like two sets of two um, and then just slowly build them up, you know what I mean? Um, and some isometrics with it. And uh, uh, But don't be too concerned if you're not doing more than sort of 10 reps a week with it. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I love that stuff. I, I, I'm, that stuff I'm going to take uh, take to heart too. I, I'm, thanks for, for sharing that. I, uh, uh, so I got one more question I think we have time for. And so you mentioned a little bit about the 1080. And could you share a little bit, and you talked about your work with complexes. Could you give a little bit of insight in how you're using that in terms of overspeed or resisting any favorite protocols uh, and talk a little bit about your experience there? Yeah, so most of this was all sort of under the direction of Randy. Um, and he would I'd generally be, it would be me or another guy that would be generally on the little um, uh, tablet uh, Microsoft Surface, um, do it like plugging in the numbers and whatnot. We'd, we'd do it with a contrast, like resisted before they did some approaches. Um, we also did a fair bit of overspeed uh, stuff. Um, we you'd, you'd start off overspeed at a certain, uh, maybe ten percent faster than they can run, something like that, and at a certain weight, and then you try and keep the speed the same, but you decrease the weight that's pulling them, so they adapt to their own body weight running that fast. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's something we like just on an aside. That's what we'd also do with power in the weight room. You you find out where their peak power is or what their peak power is at their peak power weight, and then you try and create that same power at lighter and lighter weights because unfortunately you don't get to run down the track or take off in a long jump with a barbell on your back to generate extra power. You know what I mean? Your your mass is fixed, so uh, you've got to improve the accelerative and the velocity components of that equation to to increase power and power will make you go further faster longer so um yeah resisted stuff a lot of the um, resisted stuff we we wouldn't do too heavy uh but it was really really cool and uh, i also was lucky enough to spend some time with rolf Ullman, who was the actual creator of 1080 um and he's not i don't think he's involved with the company anymore perhaps except as a consultant but um he was he was a brilliant resource um um, just for like my ideas on it, and um, and obviously working with it day in day out was was brilliant. I really think that especially that quantification of overspeed, like if you're running faster than what you can normally, that's really important. Like you can do it with bands um, or pulleys, but you don't really know. You can set up timing gates, but it's not the timing gates might be every ten meters. You know what I mean? You might have two meters that's faster than the other two meters, and so there's a safety aspect to it as well. Um, that I think the 1080 is really important for an order. Look, I'd love to have them in, uh, in not just the track and field environment, but team sport environment, all sorts of things. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's an amazing tool. I think I really like uh, specifically what you said about you know, an athlete can create a certain amount of maximal power, but then you want to do that with less weight to accomplish it. I, I was, I mean, I, I've done the same thing on the the Kaiser jumpers with my swim, my swim athletes, and I mean, to me, it's a little. I, I shed maybe a little tear because I know it's not like a super, super specific thing. I mean, it's a little bit more general for them, although there is some relevance to me pushing off the walls. But I'll 
once we get towards the end of the year or towards those those high power phases i want them to hit high power with less total weight so i'll say you know use less resistance and i still want you to get high power and try to ship push that paradigm but that was just something i started thinking about recently and it's interesting to hear you say that i think it's something you could put into almost any any test you do with an athlete as you progress them throughout the year yeah, hundred percent. And it's it's not just like uh, it's not just a test. It would be like that's embedded in our day to day training. You know, yeah, what I mean, all the I reckon it's it's almost worthless doing sort of tests once every six weeks or four weeks. You know what I mean? You want to embed everything you do into your training, and you but you record it. You know what I mean? The power numbers from your Kaiser squat or your velocities and a hand clean and things like that, and you monitor that over time, and then you make changes to that over time. Because otherwise you don't get an accurate picture of, of what's actually going on with the athlete. It's all just, uh, well, on this particular day, we're going to hope they turn up and we're going to hope we're going to get an accurate re- uh, reflection of their training status and what's actually been going on. Where, heck, they might have had a, um, a bust up with their girlfriend the night before, you know what I mean? Or they might have been, uh, something might have happened or they might have had a real bad sleep or maybe they had a great sleep on that day and and uh, they're really fresh. All these things matter. Um so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of not isolating testing, but um, putting testing in as a, a embedded into into your day to day training. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I was gonna say I could have as easily, I should have as easily said uh, said training. I I do we do use it every week with the 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 Kaiser on my end, but that is a good distinction because I think a lot of people don't don't think of it that way. And the idea, like if you can make the training the test, I guess that's the that's the ultimate there, and not having a test for the sake of saying that this is a test every so so often exactly exactly no yeah mate that's that's the future like that's uh, it really is it's it's how you want to structure your training especially using numbers and data from the training for sure yeah yeah uh the last question with that and this could be with the 1080 or just just in general but how often are using that specialized types of training in general uh per week uh for like the main like special strength periods are, are you looking at usually like once a week for assisted or once when once for resisted are you or just once a week in general how often are you using that with some of your athletes i think the the sort of heaviest concentration that we used or randy would use was maybe two resisted and one overspeed session in a seven day microcycle we had a couple of 10 day microcycles that we went through and it might have been the case there i can't quite recall um, but uh, I, I think that would have been the heaviest that we would have done um, as a resisted overspeed, and uh, and sometimes we also alternated between 1080 on one of those days, then did say something overspeed, and then following up if it was an acceleration like where we want to really work on acceleration with the guys, um, and then they did it with a sled, you know what I mean, um, just as a way of adding some variety. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is it's a it's a it's another story, but it's a it's a variation to to that resistance. And um, I uh, the one thing I really like to do just off the top of my head with the with the sled stuff is in the future is do more of the sled uh, sled pulling or sled sprinting at peak power weight. I think there's a real good argument for that, like the JB Morin and uh, yeah. Samazino stuff. Um, I think you got to be careful with uh, like injury. Like, there's there's maybe some injury considerations like Achilles and whatnot that. Um, could be could be considered but i think if you work at peak power on the gym the peak power weight on the gym why why shouldn't you work at peak power weight on the on the track um and uh um and then reducing it like obviously that same strategy of you want to try and keep those same power numbers mm-hmm. while your weight on that sled reduces and reduces um 
and the sleds actually since I've come back to Australia I've done a bit of work with uh, um, a, a pro f- a football club here and um, they sent a couple of guys to me for some speed before their preseason and blah 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 but the, my strategy with them is you just put on as much weight as it takes to make them look good when they accelerate and then get them to remember that and then you start slowly taking weight off <laughs> like there's not a uh, I, I, I haven't looked at it and I, that could be a consideration with sprinters as well but you, you find the weight where they look real good and then uh, this is this is uh, putting on a coaching hat rather than a, uh, a sports scientist or strength and conditioning hat and once they look real good then you slowly start taking weight off and ask them to keep keep what looks really good and that uh, at that weight uh, the same as you get lighter and lighter dude I, I think that is that is awesome stuff I mean it's it's and yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure the science will probably be there eventually, but I mean, that sounds, that sounds like really, I mean, I, I think anyone who's done, even who's just done sled, like a sled session in one workout where you, where you start lift sprinting with a heavy sled and you slowly take weight off even throughout the session, you just feel that power and like, you just magnify that throughout a longer uh, mesocycle and that idea. And I just think that's, that's great stuff yeah. and uh, yeah, applicable to anything and really good advice. Uh, so that Joseph, I think that's all the time I have uh, for the podcast today with you. But man, I could talk about this stuff forever. I, I feel sad I didn't even get to all the questions, but it's just like I kept, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so. Uh, it's just been so great to hear all your insights and everything that you've been doing in the sport. And so, uh, thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. All right, no worries. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in with us today. Hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did putting it together. And it's always awesome just learning from those who are working with the best athletes and coaches in the world. And really cool to get that insight into what makes those training programs tick. Uh, As always, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, amazing blog, amazing product line, uh, and you're going to get it at an awesome price and amazing customer service. Uh, also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't hesitate to leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're tuning in on. We would really appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week with another great episode. Until then, have a good one.